Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I welcome Gareth Smith, ex-Royal Marine, paramedic and serving physician's associate. Gareth has applied his medical expertise around the world, from war zones to a Welsh emergency department where he's been stationed for the last two years. Today's episode is a raw and honest insight into how he dealt with life in the Royal Marines, emergency trauma care in hostile environments, PTSD, life as part of the NHS, and also he provides some useful information for shift workers and other essential guidance that everyone can benefit from. This conversation touches on many important points and it is an episode I thoroughly enjoyed. Let's get into it. Gareth, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. To begin with, I'm keen to explore your life as a practicing physician's associate and also how you got to this point. So welcome. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's good to be here, mate. Um, really is. And um, I mean, I'm now 37 years old uh, with quite a an interesting sort of history that's led me here. Um, I mean, as you know, I joined the Royal Marines at 18 um, and I managed to do five years in the, the Royal Marines before I got medically discharged. Um, I'd medically discharged for uh, developing ulcerative colitis, which is an inflammatory bowel disease. Nobody knows where it comes from. There's lots of sort of theories. However, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't conducive of me being an elite soldier in the Royal Marines. So I was uh, medically discharged. Did a few jobs, uh, drove bin lorries, swept the streets before finding a, a position as a paramedic and going back to university at the age of sort of 20, 26. Um, became paramedic and the first thing I did was uh, once I qualified after two years at university is is go abroad I went abroad combining sort of my Royal Marine experience and my newfound paramedical experience to um, go to some of the world's most harsh countries um, lots of wars Syria Central African Republic Mali um, Somalia East Ukraine Iraq Afghanistan all, all the all the sort of joyful places of the world as you could say um, and put to, to use my paramedical skills one thing led to another and about after 10 years of being abroad again blown up one too many times and shot at um, I decided to come home did one shift on the ambulance and found my my skills wasted I would say in a non-arrogant way um, because a lot of the time you spend waiting outside hospital in Wales to transfer patients into hospital. And at the same time as that, I got offered a job in uh, a new course for the United Kingdom, um, which was uh, physician associates. It's been in America for, for 55, 56 years as a physician assistant, where a physician associate works alongside a doctor in the diagnosis and management of patients. So I went back to university again and did a two years master's um, uh, where I qualified as a physician associate two years ago now, uh, and I've been working inside the emergency department since. Um, so for the last two years and throughout sort of this this latest series of events, I've been been in the emergency department. Um, I guess that's my life story in uh, in 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 a couple of minutes. <laughs> well, there's quite a lot that happened in that time. I mean, just quickly going back to the experience you had abroad. Primarily, what were you focusing on during that time? Was it a lot of 
war-based injuries, sort of conflict-based injuries. What I mean by that is like high impact, bullet wounds, that sort of stuff. Is that something that was dealt with in those theatres or those countries? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it was. There, there was lots of sort of, as you call it, high impact sort of traumatic sort of injuries um, uh, on the front line, uh, not with your governmental or military support. Um, so lots of time I'd be with the United Nations, but with my background, for example, in Somalia, um, most of the United Nations uh, stay within Mogadishu itself, within the airport compound. Uh, I was actually outside the airport compound and would fly around uh, Somalia uh, helping or, or providing paramedical support to high net worth individuals from, from the United Nations. But also the contractors that would be in these mm -hmm. locations. So not only would I necessarily have traumatic injuries to deal with, gunshots, amputations, uh, all that kind of thing. I would also be dealing with the normal run-of-the-mill stuff. So heart attacks were for, for contractors that were out in the middle of nowhere uh, providing support and, and their expertise. One instance of uh, uh, somebody, uh, a contractor, knocking at my door at 2 o'clock in the morning complaining of back pain. Um, and I'm thinking at this stage, you know, what could this be? In my head, asking him lots of questions, I'm kind of going down the route that this could be a heart attack. So I then have to organize transportation of this individual back to our level two facility, which was four or five hours away uh, through the center of Mogadishu, um, armed guards and, and all that malarkey. So uh, yeah, I was uh, remote medicine at its, um, at, its, at its finest, to be honest. <laughs> Were they, was it sort of land cruisers, armoured land cruisers? Is that what you guys were using? Haven't yeah, you? so, yeah, out of everywhere I've been, ranging from Iraq, even east Ukraine um, uh, to Somalia, it was, it was mainly uh, the armoured land cruisers, the B6 armoured land cruisers that we all know too well in, in the private security industry. But they, they were used quite extensively for, for east Ukraine as well. So I was out in east Ukraine for, for about altogether probably about 10 minutes during the height of the uh the ceasefire uh in inverted commas um uh, so i was on east ukraine i was in donetsk uh where the main sort of brunt of the fighting was uh i was out there i was connected and part of the mh17 plane crash investigation um so going out to the mh17 plane debris um trying to collect body parts and pieces of the wreckage to determine who was at fault and all during that, we were uh, traveling in the B6 land cruisers mm -hmm. um, and we get shot at and, and uh, attacked in them as well. So it was um, one of my one of my favorite vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I mention it is because I think sometimes people perceive that when you are in a conflict zone, that you're moving around in heavily armored tanks and this sort of stuff. But in reality, it's just an up armored land cruiser, which you would see on the road. But with a little bit more weight in the doors and the glass just to give you a little bit more protection but they're still relatively volatile when it comes to bigger weapons being used against them so obviously that carries quite a huge risk and they are at risk of things like ieds uh, so the road blowing up improvised explosive devices that sort of stuff yeah definitely and um they they often give you a false sense of security um they're very noisy when sort of small harm fire hit them and they do take, they do take a little uh, bit of medium sort of Sem6 two from from like a GPMG or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the 
the bigger explosions uh, you don't want to be too close to, <laughs> that's for sure. But they well, weigh about four and a half tons. Um, yeah. they're, they're, you know, fully armored up. They're about four and a half ton. They're, uh, they're a hefty machine and, you know, they, they had the V8 engines in them, um, but they, uh, they did their job. They did their job. That's good. Man. That's good. I mean, it, it actually leads me into the next question, which was obviously when you work, uh, in my experience of conflict, when you then move into public services or you start to move into a more, how do you say it, a safer environment, but still with control chaos, I say control chaos, but a form of chaos going on around you, it tends to give you a little bit more of a level head because it's a little bit less kinetic in terms of your life is not as at risk in most scenarios. Obviously, some paramedics are working in quite hostile environments in terms of them moving into to houses where things might be happening. But in reality, working in like an emergency department is a little bit safer. Did you find that the crossover from working in conflict to then working in a hospital gave you a form of advantage in terms of keeping a level head? That's a good question. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it has, you know, I, I, I've gone through quite a, a tough transition period over sort of the, like the last three, four years. Um, however, this, this last two years in, in hospital, now that I've gained composure uh, in myself and, and, and dealt with, um, some of the demons that that seem to follow you around. I, I feel that I'm very cool, calm, collected, and unable to to make decisions um, without panicking. Um, and yeah, I mean, working in these environments are, are they're not for the faint-hearted, but it's led me to where I am today, and it's made me I feel quite a, a all-rounded practitioner. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it has helped a lot. Do you find there's certain things that have helped? Uh, I will get onto the last year shortly, but I found in the fire service, you you might go months without seeing anything. Then all of a sudden you get a month period where I had, I think, seven, eight fatalities in the last month of service. And you, it just creeps upon you. Oh, I say creeps upon you. It sort of jumps or pounces upon you quite quick. And it can be quite a lot to absorb because you do your shift, you go home, then you work through those processes, just like the military when you do conflict and then you come home. It's a completely different environment. So you have to somehow interpret that information and process it so it doesn't affect you, not just at work, but in your daily life. Is there certain things that you have in place, like exercise or other things that have helped you mentally prepare for what lies ahead, but equally to deal with what has already happened? Yeah, and I think the only way I can answer that is to to go back to how I used to deal with things, um, and then I'll come on to how I, I deal with them now. I I remember, for example, going to East Ukraine. It was probably one of the worst wars I I've been to because it was a it was a fully functioning town city. I mean, Donetsk, where I was, held the, I don't follow football, but excuse me, held sort of um, one of the major European sort of finals. And they built this new airport, um, especially for uh, this football competition. And the whole place had been destroyed. Um, people, I remember going to see people who were going about their daily shopping, carrying shopping bags, uh, a mortar had landed and killed sort of four or five people um, still carrying the shopping bags rip full of shrapnel so it was a normal town and we were dealing with this every day um 
death, getting bombed, getting shot at. It was the Wild West like you've never seen. And I'd be in this environment and then it'd be coming to the end of a, a rotation, a bit of R&R. And I'd fly from this environment and I'd be back in Cardiff within 24 hours. And it's almost impossible to comprehend how that makes you feel until you do it. And you'd be coming home and I'd have all these thoughts. I turn to alcohol. Um, I drink a lot to try and numb down the, the, the thoughts that were going through my head. I'd spend lots of money on stuff that I didn't need. It was all external gratification to make me feel better. And I always felt that there was so much more peace being in war, being in that environment, because you're living on your adrenaline, you're living on that fight or flight response. And when you come home and you haven't got that constant external sort of stimulus, you're struggling to, to compre comprehend anything. So I did everything wrong. Alcohol, um, spending lots of money and just not looking after myself and trying to get into this environment again quickly. So the second you'd have a phone call saying, I know you've only been home for a, for a week, Gareth, but we're short of a medic in Somalia. Can you go? I'd be straight on the plane and, and, and getting out there as quick as I can. Um, and it's not very healthy. It's not conducive to a, a healthy life. So it got to a point where I couldn't cope with that anymore. Um, I was missing out on my son growing up. I was struggling um, with, with alcohol. I even contemplated um, taking my own life at one stage. I, I sat on the cliff top and flipped a coin and, and decided which way I would go. And that's, <laughs> that, that's no way to, to live. Um, so luckily the, the coin landed the right way and I, I put, put steps in um, to try and sort my head out. I had to go for, didn't have to, I decided to go for some EMDR sort of training to, to try and process the memories that I was going through. And I stopped covering them over with alcohol. So I stopped drinking. I uh, tried to develop myself, started writing poetry, started being more creative, taking more photography um, and putting processes in place that allowed me to process the memories uh, to reflect on them to reflect on on situations that were happening in that moment so we now scoot forward to last week for example um i had quite a traumatic case that came into the recess department um quite a lot of blood had to pack a wound with some cellox gauze which is a hemostatic agent um and old me sort of two, three years ago would have come home and turned to alcohol and had a couple of drinks to try and numb off the old sort of memories, the, the memories that, that the little gremlins that, that will always follow you around. But I came back, I wrote it down, I processed it, I um, reflected on it, I reflected on what I could have done differently, what I should do differently the next time. I spoke to people, I didn't internalize everything, I was almost stoic about it. I felt the, the feelings within me. I recognized those feelings. I wrote them down. I spoke about them, processed them, and then let them all out. Um, I didn't touch a drop of alcohol, went to bed that night, slept soundly, had nice dreams, and woke up in the morning in a, in a totally different place, which I think is very important. And I wish I had that knowledge going back 10 years in the, the 10 years I did in those hostile environments, because you seem to just hold on to them. And 
Um, I was always told that uh, PTSD or, or those sort of memories are, are like a computer RAM and hard drives and, and, you know, our RAM gets full, our random access memory gets full by these horrible sort of images and we're not able to process them and put them into our hard drive. So I think going back to your original question, what I do is I have a diary, I write things down, I talk about my feelings, I let them out, I process them um, so that they're not stored within me and manifested in other sort of illness that um, can happen from, from sort of holding on to, to repress memories. And, and um, not turn into alcohol is an answer. <laughs> yeah looking back as well i think many people go through that process especially x forces and probably many public services as well because it's easier to numb like for a short period of time and just move to something like a like a form of drug or like a form of well, alcohol has a drug and start to start to self-medicate with buying loads of outdoor gear as an, as an example um but these things, I think sometimes if we don't go through these, we aren't in a position to help others through the same process. Equally, something that helped myself, and I know a few others, is that if it wasn't me, who would have been there to witness that? So I was willing to take that sacrifice to witness that process because I wouldn't have wanted someone else to go through that process. And that really helped me go, actually that was a thing. And did I want to be there? Did I actually volunteer for that role? Yes, I did. And I wouldn't have changed that for the world. So I think there's many benefits from these processes. And equally, again, if you can help someone else through that same process that you've gone through, that's yeah, a positive. Looking back on these things, however traumatic at the time, and in reflection, we're helping others go through some processes to ourselves. Yeah. Um, spot on I, I feel exactly the same and you know coming back into the emergency department um you know now when when people come in and they're in an acute depressive episode or they've attempted suicide or they're suffering from from a mental health illness I feel I'm quite quite well suited to to help them and and um explain to them which we shouldn't do as healthcare professionals, but I try to explain to them what I've been through and what I've learned on the process so that they're able to, to help with their own sort of mental health crisis in that moment. Um, and as harrowing as some of the things have been throughout my life, I don't regret them in the slightest. And mm. I feel that I've learned um, these skills to, to now help others. Yeah, and also by by however you're not supposed to, if that's how it is, it does provide a human aspect to these things. It's like showing falling out of a hand balance or falling out of a skill that people think you're proficient in. It shows that the reality of these things, the re reality is you, you aren't staying up there 100 out of 100 times. You're probably falling over 80 out of 100 times. And then that gets less and less as time goes on. But if you don't communicate those human aspects, people think that you're at a level that's unconnected. It's not connected to where they are. And I think that connection is very important, especially at this time, because sometimes people assume that others are not in the same position. And especially now over this last year, many of us have been thinking very similar things, feeling very similar things, isolation, that sort of stuff. 
So it's how can we build more bridges between people by finding connection through whatever it might be, health, fitness, it could be anything at all. But it actually leads me well into this next one. Like, How have you found the last year working in an emergency department in a hospital and what have you noticed, like the changes, what have you noticed in terms of uh, stress levels, anxiety amongst staff, um, stress on the NHS, those sorts of things? I mean, this could be a, uh, a several hour podcast in, in itself. Um, I, I'll come on to, to stress, first of all, I think, um, and looking at the stress level of staff, uh, it's been phenomenal. I think that links quite nicely and with what you mentioned earlier about how do I function in the emergency department? I've lived a high stress life and coming in during sort of this last 12 months. Um, for me, I've been able to deal with the stress quite well. Um, however, for others, it's the, the pressure's been phenomenal. Um, I mean, initially when the first lockdown happened in the emergency department, we were actually fairly quiet um dare i say it lots of the normal sort of injuries illnesses weren't presenting to the emergency department and we'd often um have days where we we didn't see that many normal day-to-day um illnesses uh where they went who knows <laughs> um uh but it was more so the fact that the threat of this unknown illness was really playing on people's minds um there was lots of healthcare practitioners um nurses um doctors who were getting very ill um they were ending up in itu um there was a few nurses in the hospital that i was at who actually died so the 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 pressure on the individuals was astronomical um they were worried gareth on that one is that was that down to uh, COVID, or was that a stress thing? Was it? Um, no, no, it was down to it was down to COVID. There was individuals catching COVID, dying from COVID, and they were they were unwell. Um, and the stress of the fear, mm-hmm. the the fear and the fear mongering going on within sort of the news agencies was adding to that stress level. Um, so there were lots of worried individuals that were um in hospital worried that they were going to get it they weren't seeing family members because they were worried they were going to pass it on to family members um so the isolation and the fear sort of were ultimately then even worse than the 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 actual illness itself because when you actually broke it down and looked at the numbers that actually did die um and were ill was a lot less than than the stress factor. And I think the stress amplified other aspects of it. So it's been a very unique and um, strange sort of 24 months. The general public were fantastic. Um, the amount of sort of help that we did receive, local churches bringing in food, et cetera, it was, you know, it was phenomenal. Um, but the, the numbers of patients that we've seen initially, didn't really meet up with the stress and um, worry that, that that everyone was harping on about. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting 12 months, 24 months, um, and more so the last 12 months now that things are starting to open back up. 
Um, I mean, I, I noticed on the news sort of uh, a couple of days ago that there's talk of a third wave because of case numbers rising. I've not seen a positive case of COVID for a couple of months. So the worry of contracting COVID has now decreased and the stress of not having a normal life has increased. Isolation, I fear, has been the biggest impact of it all, though. I think the, the biggest factor of life longevity, um, rather than any sort of comorbid factors, is isolation. And that's not necessarily being isolated and being on your own. It's the feeling of isolation. It's got the most, it's got the highest rate of early mortality um, from the feeling of being isolated. Sorry on that one, Gareth, if you look at the blue zone data, many people attribute many of the longevity stats towards the food or various other things. But if you look at every blue zone, community is a huge part of their life. So if you really look at what you're saying now, it completely marries up with that fact. If you are meeting up with people every evening, you're having a laugh, you're sort of mixing as a community, you're sharing yeah, sharing thoughts effectively. And if you are talking about these things, like you mentioned earlier, in terms of if you have a bad thought that day, if you discuss these things, it becomes easier. But it's really interesting to know that in an emergency department, it's been quite quiet because the more kinetic injuries, the more acute injuries, probably people have been staying at home with a potential broken wrist and just strapping their fingers up instead of actually coming in and getting seen and getting professional help. Yeah, and I mean, that that was initially sort of two years ago. Once the, the first lockdown ended, um, the, the amount of uh, injuries just, uh, and, and at the moment, um, it's it's absolute carnage um, with with how busy it is uh, where I work at the moment. It's 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 phenomenally busy. You haven't got, um, so you haven't got any people coming in with like long long term injuries. If you, if you had anyone with like a long term break that just didn't get seen for a long period of time, is that something you've witnessed? I, I have witnessed that. I've I, I witnessed somebody come in with a a week long open fracture um, no. of, of the yeah of the wrist. Um, I, I think the biggest problem I I've seen is more of the elderly people and I can put it back to sort of my my sort of paramedic days as well it's not so much now you know but the the initial sort of when the first lockdown happened when we were scared and we didn't understand what was going on uh, and people were staying in home and not doing anything it was the elderly people who didn't call 999 didn't seek medical attention because they didn't want to put people out and they were the 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 poorly people they were the ill people the people that needed the, the, the help um this last six months has been business as usual if not worse to be honest um yeah so i i have seen some you know illnesses or or problems that that people should have sought attention initially uh, however they've just left it too long and and the help's no longer there for them so if anyone's listening that is a bit ill they are a bit apprehensive about going in to see uh could you would you feel confident of reassuring someone to say look come and get seen because it is a, a good environment it is somewhere you can come in and get seen because it's something that i worry about is 
friends or family and that sort of stuff that are stuck in the house because they are concerned about going out. And I know for many people, they're sort of fed up of hearing this stuff now, but equally, I do think some people are still so scared about certain things because of various media channels, et cetera, that these services that are quite safe now to sort of utilize people aren't still ready for it yet. So would you feel confident in saying, yeah, come in, get seen because it's more important? Yeah, 100% confident in saying that. I, I think your health is is paramount. And if you've got something wrong with you, if you've got chest pain, for example, don't put it off because you're scared to come in. If you've got chest pain, you need to be seen straight away. Um, the earlier we, we get to see you, the earlier that we can get to help you. Um, you know, I, I've seen pay, people who have come in um, six months after their first bout of chest pain. They didn't seek any help then. And they might have had a heart attack that six month period beforehand. And now they've got extra strain and poor cardiac output because they didn't receive the correct medication at the time of the initial um, chest pain. We can't confirm that. You know, we can't say, yeah, 100% they had a heart attack at that point. But if they had sought medical help then, they would be in a better position now potentially. And, and I think it's so important that if, if you are unwell, if you have got chest pain, if you have got um, something wrong, you, you know, you need to come in. Uh, I feel quite confident and safe that that processes are in place in definitely in the hospital I work in, but, but in hospitals throughout the UK that if you haven't got a temperature, you get seen in an area that, that hasn't got any COVID and tests are done um, throughout whoever comes into hospital and throughout the hospital, there are COVID tests in place. And, and I feel that it, it is, it is a safe environment now. It actually leads me on to the next thing. What have you seen that has had positive effects? I'm not just talking about the, the current situation, but on people's health in general. So I know we've talked about breathing. It's something I'm very keen on through my learning process and courses I'm involved with, but, I know you're dealing with aspects of like cardiac health and circulation with respiratory based practices and seeing very positive results. Would you be able to go into a few details about some of those practices to enlighten people that are listening? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm classed as a little bit woo woo in work. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily the kind of person that will jump straight to a, a drug to, to, to fix something. Um, I think anxiety levels are, are through the roof at the moment um, when somebody comes into to hospital and often that um, represents and, and comes across in high blood pressure or a faster heart rate tachycardia. And then um, one of the, the practices I, I try and get all my patients to do uh, if they've come in with hypertension, white coat hypertension, as we, we like to call it, um, is a couple of breathing techniques and I have good results from it. Um, so say for example, a, a 50 year old person comes in and their blood pressure is 180 over hundred. Um, that's a high blood pressure. They might, might not be on any antihypertensives. What would the, uh, could you just explain what a normal blood pressure would be Gareth? So, but yeah, so a rough rule of thumb would be a hundred plus your age to a maximum of 140. Um, so, so for example, I'm 37, my blood pressure is around 120 over 70. Um, I class that as quite good blood pressure and around that should be something that, that you should 
should aim to 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 have so anything over 140 an ambulatory blood pressure over over 140 to 150 should be treated with dietary changes and then medication starts coming in at a 150 160 so if a somebody presents with a blood pressure 180 not necessarily that we would treat that in the emergency department um but lots of my colleagues would potentially refer back to to the gp to to have an ambulatory blood pressure check so with the potential of treating it with medications. However, we can treat high blood pressure. We can treat a little bit of tachycardia with simple breathing techniques. So my favorite, my go-to at the moment is, is clusters the, uh, from Andrew Huberman, uh, the physiological psi. Uh, so it's two breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth, five to 10 repetitions of that with the lights off and the eyes closed. And this gentleman would then have a normal blood pressure. Um, I had a, a very anxious lady in fairly young, uh, running at a constant heart rate of about 120. Um, I got a heart rate down to 70, uh, with five minutes of breathing techniques and it didn't go back up. Um, and she's had this tachycardia for about two years and she was too scared to come into hospital. And because she was too scared, it was a perpetual cycle of um, constant anxiety and stress. It, she was like a different person walking out of the, the emergency room just by two, two to five minutes of breathing techniques and talking through her feelings. Um, I still referred her back to the GP because it was a little bit of an odd situation. Um, but if you arm the general public you arm sort of uh, individuals with methods that they're able to look after themselves with uh, it, it sort of almost avoids the need to jump straight into into a medication um, to fix something and it's a long-term approach isn't it you're, you're giving someone a tool that they can access at any time because fundamentally a medication if the the problem has got to an acute stage where it is way outside these markers may be needed just to bring them back into that range that you can then work with them but the difference is is leaving someone on long-term medication without trying these methods is it's almost like it's a missed opportunity isn't it it's a missed opportunity to help someone that it doesn't cost anything because these things are available to us for free which is why i wanted to get into to running this podcast because people like yourself have this knowledge of information around these techniques that can be passed on and it doesn't have to cost a hundred pound a day to, to access certain type of pills and tablets. Just so just to recap on that breathing technique, it's uh, an inhale with a sharp inhale at the end. Is that the one you're referring to? So it's for like yeah, a forced yeah. inhale at the end. Yeah. So fully inhale throughout your nose and then a sharp inhale again, and then exhale through the mouth. Yeah. So um, it's uh, it's quite difficult to, to, to get it right. It takes some, some practice, um, but it worked out, helped me go to sleep at night as well. So it's, uh, it's part of my nighttime routine. Yeah. Cause there's also like the, um, CO2 tolerance aspects as well, isn't that, which you can build up in time because the way the, the body responds to rising CO2 levels, if you have a better tolerance to that form of stress, then you can start to control and slow your breathing rate because you're effectively, it's the way I describe it with breathing. If you're exhaling slowly through your nose, what you're actually doing is like sticking your thumb in the end of the hose pipe and controlling the flow of water. So that back pressure is something you, you learn to deal with and you don't panic because breathing through the mouth very shallow is not bringing uh, nitric oxide into the lungs to flush the lungs and, and utilize the surface area. 
what's actually sorry the actual area of the lungs it's just utilizing the top so when we start to use the base of the lungs we actually start to to flood the body with more air or the gases that we actually need to function better and think better and maintain good health yeah yeah and you know you can utilize these sort of practices throughout sort of training as well so for example if you're running and you're running all out and you've got your heart rate quite high you can breathe through pursed lips and really slow down the expiratory phase of your breathing which will bring your heart rate down and you're still running at the same pace but your heart rate begins to lower which makes you be able to continue for longer um so there's all 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 little tricks that that are there that are part of our physiology and we're able to tap into them but we've we've kind of lost that that approach we've lost that ability um to to do that as we uh, go further in time um, for the development of mankind. Yep. That's very true. I mean, would you say that part of the reason for that on a healthcare perspective, because you you can see both sides of this. And one of the many things I appreciate about having you on today, Gareth, is you are straight talking and straight thinking in terms of if there is a benefit there to using a technique, you will use it. And this is something I'm, I think a lot of us as ex-military and especially ex-bootnecks or ex-marines we tend to sort of try and pick the methods that work and if it works we stick with it and that's something we're going to pass on because it's you're not going to mess around with these things that could potentially work and we need to have more of that to some degree in my opinion it's like if it's proven let's use it because it's a tool that we can all benefit from is there something i was going to say what have you learned from this situation um and one of them was like do you think the time constraints on the nhs contribute towards not being able to pass on this knowledge and this is why pharmaceuticals are recommended more because people in your role and your peers haven't got that time to dedicate to a patient not because they don't want to but because the system is stopping them from doing so yeah um to answer that question simply um you know uh i often come into work at at sort of seven thirty eight eight o'clock in the morning with quite a, a long wait for a patient to be seen. Um, and there is lots of pressure to get patients seen and get them treated and get them into hospital or out of hospital and get the right follow-ups. And the, the sheer numbers of patients coming through the door means that sometimes it's almost impossible to offer this extra information offer the information that's free for all to access and we we have to turn to to medications and there is a time and a place for drugs there is but sometimes the vast majority of people we see are the worried well they're people who are well they haven't got any medical conditions but they're worried about it They've looked at Dr. Google, um, which means that they're even more worried and they come in and ultimately they just need to be directed in the right, the, the right avenue. And they're the people who we can be a lot more holistic with. Um, we can talk to them about breathing techniques. We can talk to them about their diet, um, about other aspects of their life, which could make major changes. And so time constraints are a major problem. 
However, it also comes back to the education part. And I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm a physician associate. We do two years in medical school, not the five or six. However, the education part of sort of medical practice is also potentially, dare I say it, a little bit focused on medication as well. So because we're, we're, we're learning about all this medication, this pill does that, that pill does this, we're forgetting about the innate methods and processes that the human body has and are able to, to tap into to, to fix themselves as well. Do you think that's partly down to the fact that, uh, how do I say this, that the money behind the methods that potentially are free a study costs money, doesn't it? To run a peer-reviewed study or double-blind study costs a lot of money. I don't think people realize how much money it actually costs. You're talking potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds or more. If you're looking at long-term studies, five, six years beyond, you're going to be spending millions to, to get this data. Do you think that's part of the reason that these holistic methods aren't supported as much because there's not the funding uh, they're not big pharmaceutical companies behind it to fund these type of studies in order to get this to the mainstream or actually get this through the medical system do you think that's part and parcel of why pharmaceuticals are pushed a little bit more because there is that funding there to to get that tick in the box to provide the study to the industry yeah, I, I think the holistic approach to medicine is is really improving at the moment. I, I, I do. I think there's more drive to be holistic. Um, time constraints stop that, but but there is a drive to be holistic. And, and there's lots of GPs out there who are offering this sort of information, and it's fantastic. Um, but I think the backbone of the education system is based around uh, pharmaceuticals and these pharmaceutical sort of driven um, processes because of the, the sheer cost. Um, and you're right, it costs millions to make these double blind placebo trials and, and getting the people involved in it. It's, it's a phenomenal amount of money. And you tend to find that these studies are, are actually paid for by the pharmaceutical companies or the food industry. So it's a, it's, it's a tough, it's a, tough place to to try and change things um because money money speaks it really does and um what are we supposed to do with a society who not a whole society but of quite a large amount of people they want a pill to fix something because that's the that's the idea oh i've got high blood pressure there's a pill to fix that there's no there's no thought that or confidence in their own ability their own body to fix it um so it's we're in this situation now where people believe in the media they believe in in everything that's given to them everything that's put on their plate and they don't do the research themselves to be able to to change that so the pharmaceutical industry the food industry have created this environment where now people believe in it so much that they've lost the belief in their own bodies. They've lost the belief in who they are. They're not able to, to change that. And the second you give them a bit of information, they don't believe you. They, they want that quick fix. They want that poison. They want that, that pill that's going to cure all. 
we are we are our own alchemists we we can heal ourselves from within we we really can you've just got to you've just got to want to um the root cause of all illness is inflammation inflammation comes from the things that we put in our bodies and what we surround ourselves with if we're able to change that if we're able to reduce that inflammatory response within the human body we're able to negate the need for an external source to fix it a pill i can come up i can speak from experience i've got ulcerative colitis which is an inflammatory bowel disease i'm supposed to be on medications for the rest of my life um i've not taken a pill for 24 months i fixed my ulcerative colitis with diet with a change in thought process to reduce the stress and improve processes within myself that stop me becoming stressed i diet is such a major aspect and we we don't look at it because we walk into tesco's and high glycemic index foods are all the type of foods that are on the shelves on special offer and it's there's no thought behind it there's there's no thought at all it's designed to do that isn't it you walk into a shop that one of the easiest ways to sort of hook you to buy something is hoping the fact you've gone in hungry or that you are carbohydrate dependent more than fat dependent for example the more fat dependent you are the less hungry you are you could probably fast for 24 48 hours and not really feel the effects of hunger maybe perceived hunger but not real hunger whereas if you're dependent on high glycemic basic carbohydrates or something that gives you a quick hit cause an insulin spike in your system you're going to be in this yo-yo up and down all day so when you walk into that supermarket you see that food and you go your brain goes that's what i need because i'm hungry so you buy more and more of this stuff and that basically has caused this snowball of inflammatory markers where people are dependent on seed oils cheap wheat products and high yeah high glycemic based foods um and there was a time for that especially like an endurance sport you could utilize a high glycemic index based food like a, a gel or sugars to replace energy but the problem is many of us aren't using that energy every day yeah and it's uh, it's the fat carb combos as well i mean the 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 only food in sort of uh, nature with a fat carb combo is is a nut and we're all the foods we eat all the foods that we 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 buy on the the shelf are are fat carb combos and it makes us want them more um and we're just not we're not designed for that we're we're meant to have a higher fat content um not all calories are born equal i think you were said on sort of your your first podcast and and that stuck with me from from there because they're, they're not um and you know increase your fat fat doesn't mean that you're going to be fat um and and we've just been educated and given all this information and it just doesn't fit with the historical sort of development and historical sort of way that the human beings evolved. Yeah. And that's why I think coming back to when we're talking about using drugs, partly because the education on a mass level has been misled because the way that the food industry is structured and the way we are told to eat so-called healthy foods, which are still based around calorific intake, 
an obsession with macronutrients, well, not so much, but more calories, has led us into potentially eating, getting a calorific value every day, which ticks a certain box, but the nutrient density, which we talked about in the last two podcasts, doesn't exist. So you're basically eating empty food with that energetic value, but the reality is you're not actually getting a full spectrum of minerals. So what happens, you get ill over time, and then you do need a drug at the end of it to somehow help you because of that malnourishment you've got or that inflammatory markers that you now have, which has caused issues with the heart, the gut, various other bits and pieces. And it's really shown, hasn't it, it's, it's that all of these things that we're witnessing are completely interrelated. The mind, the body, the food, digestive system we know is so linked to your brain that there's twice as many signals going up as there is coming down to it. So that's going to play a huge part in all aspects of your life. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. And, you know, and it comes back down to, to the whole calories in, calories out arguments, you know, and, and ultimately in, in sort of essence, yeah, it, it is. It is about the calories in, calories out, but not all calories are born equal. We're not ovens. I mean, the calories, have, what, what, what amount of energy is burnt uh, at a certain temperature and we're not ovens. We need to break this food down and utilize it as, and utilize it to, to create energy at a, at a cellular level. And these low calorie foods, low fat foods, there's no, there's no nutrients in them. And, you know, we're, we're just not, we're not designed to eat that way. So I was actually going to ask, what changes did you make to your diet? that helped lower inflammatory markers or inflammation that sort of allowed you to sort of move away from more uh, drugs or the use of drugs to, to help the condition you have? So I eat lots of red meat. Um, I struggle with organs. However, I do try and eat organs, um, but, but there are sort of alternatives. So desiccated uh, organ supplements. So I take liver supplements every day. Um, I try and take heart supplements as well. Um, lots of red meat, minimal carbs. Most of the carbs I eat tend to come from berries. Um, so, uh, whatever's sort of local at that, that time. Um, I try and have honey. Um, that's, that's been fantastic for me as well. Lots of water, um, collagen. So, I'll buy a whole chicken. I'll cook the whole chicken on a Sunday, ready for sort of three, four days. I'll then turn the carcass into a bone broth. I'll have the bone broth to, to break my fast, whatever time that might be of the day. Um, so it's utilizing the whole animal. Um, it's trying to eat local, um, trying to eat seasonal, um, and just avoiding sugars, avoiding the fizzy drinks, uh, avoiding the chocolates, avoiding... Um, that that fat carb combo um you know that that we're not meant to eat i do eat pizza i do have a fizzy drink here and there but i think because i'm have that metabolic flexibility now i'm i'm able to do that and it doesn't have such a detrimental effect to to my body yeah we talked about this earlier didn't it? so so having a flexibility around uh, sorry a metabolic flexibility is the just like recovering from sport that Fitness, one of the main indicators of fitness is the ability to recover from said exertion or activity, isn't it? So how quickly can you bring your respiratory rate down and your heart rate back to a, a resting pulse or resting level straight after that activity? And how long does it take you? Equally, 
in terms of metabolic flexibility, what foods can you tolerate without causing a massive dump of insulin into the body, which is obviously compensating to regulate blood sugar levels when you get a high amount of sugar in the system. And can you adapt to that food quite quickly without having stomach upsets, without seeing high inflammation, uh, coming back to inflammation again, high inflammation in the body, all these other types of things. Um, is that how you'd explain metabolic flexibility? Something like, yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, we, we have 40,000 worth of calories stored within us, you know, um, that we, we don't tap into because we're forever eating. So all these calories that are stored and we're able to utilize and burn, they're not because we're forever eating. We've been lied to and told that that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, which in some ways you could say breakfast is, it's that meal that you break the fast at, but it doesn't mean that it has to be in the morning as soon as you wake up you know, you should break your fast at the point of the day after a period of fasting, not if you've at it sort of 8, 9 p.m. the night before and then eaten at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. It's, there, there's just no need for it. Um, we, we've lost the ability to trust in our body. Um, uh, so, yeah, being met metabolically flexible is being able to utilize those stored calories. Um, I went on a, a bike ride the other day, for example, uh, I did 70 miles on my bike. I didn't eat till I came home at sort of one o'clock. I had loads of energy. I was absolutely fine. I'm not suggesting that you could skip breakfast after you've been eating breakfast for the last 30 years and being able to do that straight away. It takes some training. It takes you time to be able to get to that point um, mm. that your body's able to change the way that it sort of utilizes the food and utilizes the, the calories that are stored within you um but we're able to do it we're mm. able to to burn fats we're able to consume fats and them not be stored um and then when we do have a i hate this term but a cheat meal um we're we're able to for it to not cause a detrimental effect to the body was that uh, that distance you covered? Was that at a constant pace or was it sort of high exertion? Because sometimes I know that if you look at like a hunter gatherer aspect, the idea was to cover long distances at low pace and that was quite achievable. When we start to push into higher, higher zones, that's when an energetic uh, demand on the body does become, yeah, it becomes more, the demand is so high that we need food effectively. Yeah, yeah, 100%. This was just a, a steady pace. Uh, wasn't extreme exertion. It was just to get the miles in, um, get the miles under my belt. Um, so then I'm, go out and do 70 miles as a sprint. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, it's just to, uh, I'm doing a bit of prehab at the moment. I've got knee surgery on Wednesday. So it's just a bit of prehab to get the, uh, to get the muscles up and the, the fitness level uh, to a good point where come Wednesday when I'm going to be laid down for a while i'm, I'm not going to be um at a loss so typical isn't it it's like uh yeah my prehab is yeah a 70 mile bike ride <laughs> <laughs> I, I can completely relate it's like am i going to turn right right goes home so no i'll go left i'll do left because that loop goes another 30 miles yeah that'd be fine that's a boot neck in us mate it's a boot neck in us <laughs> yeah no cuff too tough um from your experiences what methods could be of huge benefit to people say you work with people in the NHS public services 
what I'm referring to is long hours, varying hours and night shifts. What's worked well for you that can help to regulate things like circadian rhythm, which we know has a huge input on our immune system health and function and many other processes in our body. It's a really tough one, isn't it? With, with the night shifts. Um, it's really, really tough. And um, by the book, you know, technically speaking, you shouldn't eat while the, the sun is down, but doing a 12 hour shift throughout the night, that's, that's not really feasible. Um, you do need to eat. I mean, it's creating a routine and it's eating the, the right food at the right time as well. What I implement is cold showers, getting outside, have the sunlight when you can, that vitamin D, going for a walk, you know, and I think ultimately if you're, you're able to do that as the start of your day, no matter what time of day that is, if you've done a night shift and you've not woken up till 4 or 5 p.m. in the afternoon, yes, your circadian rhythm is going to be all off, but if you start with a cold shower, you go for a walk and you get that vitamin D in you. Um, even if it's walking in the rain, you're able to, to set yourself up for a good night shift. Sort of involve or implement intermittent fasting um, as well. So having breakfast as you're breaking the fast, not as soon as you wake up, you know, having sort of six to eight hours of um awake time before you eat your first meal i think it's quite important especially as you get to sort of two three o'clock in the morning um having that first meal then uh, it will make you more awake um i've noticed from experience that the longer i delay my my oral intake of food uh, the more awake i feel and then having a good nighttime routine when you finish work no matter what time that is as well um so turning the tv off turning the blue light off being cool going to bed as well especially as it's been quite warm at the moment so have another cold shower before you get to bed get that core temperature down so that you're able to sleep effectively even if it is broad daylight outside have the eye masks as well to to, to make it a little bit darker that actually leads into my next question i think you probably have answered most of it already but i always finish every podcast as you will have realized with leaving the listeners with something they can take away from it. So some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. So as a practicing physician's associate, I feel this will be of huge benefit to others. So Gareth, what principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach? So three to five examples. And yeah, you can always highlight over the ones you previously mentioned, because I know there will probably be a part of this question or this answer. Um, yeah, uh, I probably touched base on a, on a few of them throughout this uh, sort of podcast as well. I think the first point would be to create a routine, create a routine around your shifts, around what you do and stick to it. You know, we're, we are creatures of habit and we're, we should be creating good habits and good routines. Um, the start of your day should be cold showers, environmental hormesis, getting outside, in the sunlight and having some vitamin D, even if it's stood by your window with a window open, not touching your phone, um, just having sort of 10 minutes with that sunlight, that natural light hitting you. Have a good diet, increase your metabolic flexibility, eat good foods, eat lots of fat, eat lots of proteins that are animal-based. Um, and, and then I think the the sort of discussion around your feelings is so important. All too often, we 
we hold them inside us because we don't want to burden anyone else with our problems. But I think if we talk about our problems and we talk about our feelings as soon as they come to fruition, then we're able to remove them from, from us without holding them onto, onto them. It's being almost stoic in your approach to it. You're, you're having that feeling, you're thinking about it, you're processing it, and then you're letting it go. And if that process of the, the, the feeling is by talking to other people, I bet you you every single person listens to this, they have a friend that, that would listen to them and they might feel that they wouldn't, but they will. And they prefer to listen to, to you rather than you, you store it within yourself. Great points. And I can definitely relate to quite a few of those. So Gareth, thank you so much for giving your time, especially because of how busy you are. Um, you are, as we've talked about, fully working practitioner and you're literally here just to help. And that I massively appreciate. So thanks very much, mate. Massively appreciate your time. No problem at all, Dave. It's, uh, it's been my pleasure. Cheers, pal. All the best. Thanks, Gareth. Cheers, Cheers buddy. Cheers. Thank you for joining me on the third episode of Human First. I really enjoyed today's conversation with Gareth and massively appreciate him giving up his time to jump on the podcast in between his shifts. If you're enjoying the podcast, please support us with a like, subscribe or rating. And if you have any feedback, please let us know so we can continue to deliver information from industry experts over the following months and years. See you on episode four. Thank you.